Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology on the New Books Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. Today, we're talking to Jaime Alves, author of The Anti-Black City, Police Terror and Black Urban Life in Brazil, published in 2018 by the University of Minnesota Press. Jaime is Assistant Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at the College of Staten Island in the City City University of New York, and a research affiliate at the Centro de Estudios Afrodiasporicos at the Universidad Isesi in Colombia. Jamie Alves, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, listeners of the new new anthropology book, Sadis. So to get started, um, I was going to ask you, you write that this book is informed by your own experience of state violence and your participation in social movements in Brazil. So to get the conversation going, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure, sure. This book came out from my own experience coming to age in a favela in São Paulo. I am from northeast Brazil, just to situate the listeners. Uh, in the northeast of Brazil is a part of the, the country that has a historical background of slavery, of poverty. So in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 90s, many people would migrate to São Paulo, the southeast Brazil, of Brazil. So I'm a part of this generation that you have to migrate to this other part of the city. And of course, we go to the favelas, the shanty towns. So my experience coming to age in this particular shanty town in São Paulo, one of São Paulo's favelas, full of human tragedies, police violence, drug traffic, domestic violence, poverty, unemployment. So it really uh, uh, informs, it informs my experience and how I write the book. The book is, re- is written out of rage, uh, in a good way, but rage, and also uh, frustration. Frustration because I see most of the youth that shared this path with me during this time, this troubling time, most of them are killed or incarcerated. So this is part of my experience, and I think what makes the book maybe hopefully accessible to the reader is that I put emotion, I put my own experience up front there. Yeah, absolutely. And the book is very richly ethnographic. So can you talk a little bit about the fieldwork process for um, that you went through? Yes. So the book, uh, part of the book comes from my experience working as activism as well. Activist in São Paulo. So after the, some years, like my twenties, I started to join the black movement to work with uh, affirmative action policies for black youth, victims of police violence. So this gave me access to most of this youth. Or my favela background gave me access to prisons, to other places. And this made the ethnography the very, I would say, multi-sided ethnography. Uh, the methodology is very diverse. At some times I am in the favela, and another day I am in downtown, in a protest in downtown, 
or visit a friend in the in the prison, or going to do, to to the cemetery to visit uh, with the parents of a youth killed by the police. So this really helped me in a very tragic way to to write the book in a way that connects these distressed geographies. Uh, when I went to fieldwork, let's put in quotes quotation marks fieldwork, but when I went back to do this this work after going to the graduate school, uh, I didn't anticipate that the book would take this form. Uh, this experience, my experience, and my activism in these different fronts led me to design a methodology that cover, that would cover these dispersed manifestations of police violence, of state violence. So the methodology is basically created by the own dynamics of everyday life in these places full of human tragedy. Yeah, and so you don't have the kind of scene of the classic immersive field site, and so maybe this is why fieldwork is a problematic word, but nonetheless, the book is incredibly rich as you follow um, these kind of key actors throughout the city and follow them across the way, the way this, that their itineraries dissect the town. Well, this is a very good point that you make because, you know, at the same time that I was very familiarized with this, and we know that anthropology is precisely part of it, Immerse oneself, immersing oneself in, 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 in a familiar place and to become familiarized with you know, not become close and closer and to have like what Clifford says, a thick description. Uh, in this case, in this case, uh, I had two different uh, situations because at some times I was too familiar, they I was totally comfortable to be there, to be with, with friends and to be in the favela and be in the community doing activism working. At the same time, it also created extra pressure for the so-called mm -hmm. native anthropologists. So people are fighting for survival. They are struggling for basic needs, for, for, for the right to live. And then I am in there doing my my work, my ethnographic work. At the same time that was familiar, I've seen as a familiar face, somebody that from the community, that belongs to the community. There was huge expectations about what I should do as somebody from there. So this, this uh, Crossing these two different different worlds, the academic world and the favela, the place where my friends and other people are, made these uh, uh, well created false expectations of what I could do as anthropologist. And of course, as anthropologists, we must we must uh, agree we don't do almost nothing. And so, so before we dive into the individual chapters, could you perhaps uh, lay out the main arguments that you make throughout the book that kind of structure the course of the narrative? Sure. Well, the book tries to dialogue with this literature, mainly with this, this literature on the right to the sea. So in Latin America, this literature has been very prolific. There are several very interesting works showing the, the, the marginalized poor in Latin America, racialized cities. They fight back against the social injustice. They claim the city through different tactics, through different strategies uh, to make life livable in this space. What I try to do is to put the racial equation in this conversation. 
And by that, I mean centralizing blackness as a key point. If, as the literature says, in Latin America, the right to the city is across alliances, broad alliances among different sectors of the marginalized population. What we do when even among the marginalized population, there is a strong, a strong anti-black feelings of anti-blackness. So this perversive ideology of anti-blackness is so present, uh, even among the marginalized, that makes this conversation very difficult. So the point that the book tries to make is that if you want to think just spatial justice, spatial justice, uh, just cities in Latin America, we have to centralize blackness. A utopic place that we call black opulence. So black couples would be the utopic place where black life can be livable. And so that so this is basically the argument that you want to make. Mm-hmm. And that kind of analysis requires uh, speaking back to the kind of ideology of racial democracy that structures public life in Brazil. Is that right? It is absolutely right. So exactly, we are. I try to bring this this bank again to join all the colleagues to. Disrupt this mythology of, of racial, racial, racial democracy in Brazil, precise, precisely by showing how uh, urban utopia, all these, all these fantasies of urban life in Brazil, is anti-black in its core. So the very foundation of Brazil, and there I call, uh, uh, I invite the the reader to to think of the city as the polis, uh, as the the, the Greek city reference of the city states. So we talk about the Brazil as a polity. So Brazil is a country founded on anti-blackness. So this exactly calls into question the myth of racial democracy. How is it a racial democracy when we have thousands of black people killed every year by the police? The favela itself as a reference that takes us back to slavery. So all these spatial references, the favela, the prison, the cemetery, all these are black spaces, or we could, we could say black spaces. And these spaces call into question the ideology of racial democracy. That says that in Brazil, racial boundaries are supposedly blurry. So we have an ambiguity because in Brazil, everybody is our mixed. So space are mixed, people are mixed. So there is a, a gray zone that makes very hard, it makes it very hard to identify who is black, who is white in Brazil. Well, the book shows that in Brazil, the police has an incredible capacity to draw racial lines in bodies and in territories through death. So when the police is killing black people in the favela, the police is doing nothing but creating space, creating the favela. Of course, that is not only my argument. There are many scholars in this spatial theory, in anthropology, many in Latin America, that are making also this claim. And this is a very important claim that I joined in this conversation. And Sao Paulo is really the, the stage where a lot of the where the bulk of the ethnography takes place. So can you introduce us a little bit to the city? It's ha- it has a population of 12 million people and it's the largest city in Brazil. 
Um, so can you maybe outline a bit about the city and what, what you would uh, identify as the central features of what you call Brazilian apartheid in Sao Paulo? Yes. So Sao Paulo is the, 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 is the commercial center of Brazil. So the Sao Paulo's elite, they, they claim to be they claim to be themselves the leaders of Brazil, and São Paulo has 40% of the Brazilian population. So most of the people coming from the north and northeast Brazil, running away from slavery after the abolition in 1888, they, most of them came to São Paulo. São Paulo was the, was the place that the, uh, we had the coffee boom. So in the late 1900s. So since today, power in Brazil has shifted to southeast because before that, northeast Brazil, we have the sugar crassy. Sugar cane was the main product, and we had all these slave owners uh, with these huge sugar plantations. So when we have the, in the by, by the end of the 18th century, it started the decline in sugar plant in sugar production, and and we move the Brazilian central power moves to São Paulo, and since then São Paulo continues to be the main center, industrial industrial and commercial center of of Brazil. This is a very anti-black formation. Uh, the elite, Brazilian elites, most of the São Paulo elites, they are trained, they were, were trained in, in French, in French, uh, the design of the city, the design of São Paulo as a city was made by French architects, so many of these missions, civilizing missions came to São Paulo to create the city, we have, this, we have many, many neighborhoods in the city that Give us the example, Hygienopolis, the city of hygiene or climatization. So, names that name that associate to cleanliness, to hygiene, to sanitation. So, this is just to give the, the, the listener a little bit of how the elite thought São Paulo as a white city. It was a white city. So what we do with all these black people coming from northeast Brazil migrating to São Paulo? So the, the elite by the end of the 19th century was terrorized. The elite was terrorized. What we do? So they enforced the strict uh, urban, urban policies to prevent blacks from occupying downtown city. They created the uh, informal apartheid cities in which the black people would be located. They gave uh, immigrants, European immigrants, uh, access to land, free access to land. So they have several policies that helped to make São Paulo white city, from favoring Europeans in the access to land in the market to prevent black people to, from occupying particular parts of the city. So nowadays, what we have in São Paulo is a city that, again, is a symbol of a Brazilian imperial colonial power. We have a city that is deeply racialized. Most of the black people live in the favelas, in the high periphery, or in downtown, uh, we say, we call Cortiço, downtown, very precarious areas, shanty towns in the middle of the city. We have in the city this policy that many activists call 
cleaning with fire. In which suddenly a favela is set on fire. Well, the favela is burning. What happened? Nobody knows. And after the favela is burnt down, comes all these urban designers and create a sophisticated plaza square or create a housing, fencing housing policy for, for the elite, condominiums for the elite. So we have we still have in place these very anti-black urban policies that made São Paulo be what it is. And the book really shows the way that policing plays a central role in the production and the maintenance of the spatial order. And throughout, you you detail the entanglement um, between two forms of rule that you call necropolitical governance on the one hand and soft urban governance of uh, human security regimes on the other. So maybe starting with the latter, could you explain a bit about the transition you identify from tough to soft policing and tough to soft uh, neoliberal governance in the city? Yes, so that's a very good point to, to, to introduce uh, the chapter two. In the chapter two, I try to then to, to, to bring this conversation, this apparently contradictory policy, right? Necropolitics and biopolitics. I deal a little bit with Foucault and notions of biopolitics in the sense that Nicholas Rose calls attention to this, how in modern life, modern society, advanced society, so so-called liberal, advanced liberal society. Uh, there is a set of policies that he calls governing through community, right? So in the case of Sao Paulo in the 90s, from the 90s, we can, we can locate in the 90s a shift, a shift in these policies. So suddenly the favelas, the periphery of the city becomes this laboratory. We have to train the poor to be a better a better entrepreneur of themselves to get a job. We have to tame this troubled youth, the troubled youth, black youth, and we have to develop several pedagogical uh, projects to kids to get the kids out of drugs. So several special disciplines as well. So cleaning paving uh, streets, so several several policies there to reinforce the discipline, the spatial discipline of this problematic urban poor, mainly urban youth. So at the same time that you had this, and, and let, just to complete one particular feature of this biopolitics regime, biopolitical regime, was the invitation for the, for the poor participate in this in decision making process in decision making process regarding security so it is very ironically that at this time at the same time that the government was imposing very drastic cruel uh, neoliberal policies that threw many people out of poverty in poverty uh, in unemployed, in cutting uh, 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 services, so, uh, uh, social social expenditure. So at the same time that the government had these drastic uh, measures to downsize the state, the government was exciting people, inciting people to participate in security. So you can close your eyes and imagine 
uh, all these meetings in the favelas in the weekends in which people were invited to say where the police should be. People would be invited to tell the police where is the dot spot, to tell the police who are the troublemakers. So at the same time that the government was withdrawn from providing basic services, people were inviting people to participate in security issues. So we have the democratization of security and the privatization of all other social, social uh, regimes of social protection. So this was, I call here, the tragic combination of necropolitics and biopolitics. At the same time that the government was expanding people's access to participate in security matters, they, we had this intensification of police violence. So mass incarceration uh, skyrocketed by the 90s. Sao Paulo became, by the end of the 90s, Sao Paulo became the country's leading state in incarceration of black people, of people in general, and black people in particular. And of course, we had this enduring regime of racial terror by the police. The police never stopped producing dead black dead bodies, but by the 90s, there was an intensification of it. But now let me tell you, the book becomes obsolete very quick, very quickly. The book came out in 2018, but it's already obsolete. If I would have to stay again, to restate again the argument in this chapter, I would tell the reader that, well, the police, that I was very astonished uh, 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 when I was writing the book and revised the data from the 90s and the 2000s. Now, in 2019, the police is beating its own record again and again and again. So the book becomes very, very obsolete, very quickly in terms of mass incarceration, police violence. And yet, the democratization of security in the sense of the people's participation in these matters continues to be a biopolitical practice in the favelas. And the police continues to export this model to other parts of Latin America. This is a very important point that you want to make because Sao Paulo's police as brutal as it is, is an exporter of policing technology or policing training to all the Latin American countries. And that was facilitated by um, a series of international cooperations through international development and international finance associations. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. The UN, the UN, the UN development program. Uh, uh, yes, many, many so, uh, international think tankers, all these international organizations uh, trying to push the agenda of development and associating the agenda of development to the agenda of securitization. There are some several great work doing this argument, Tony Samara from Cape Town in South Africa, and this is particular too as well to Sao Paulo, to Brazil. In which securing the city or developing the city means securing the city. And securing the city means encaging black people, incarcerating or killing black people. And you write that this, this kind of violence is productive, is a productive form of imagining and enacting the Brazilian state. So can you expand a bit on that idea and what you see as the consequences of this kind of violence um, and, and terror for how we should understand neoliberal urban governance in general? 
The point here that uh, I think is that we think about sovereignty, and, and, and I think in anthropology we have some great conversations on how the body becomes the exercise of sovereign power, right? So the book is trying to advance or join this argument, trying to locate in the black body the place for the enactment of state sovereignty. And this only makes sense if we accept that in the Brazilian polity, in the Brazilian context, black people are regarded as enemy, enemy of the state, enemy of civil society. So the classic distinction political scientists make between criminal and enemies. For the criminals, the law. To the enemies, death. So in the case of Brazil, black people is, are conceived as enemies of the state and enemies of civil society. And therefore, the only way that they can be, they can be tamed is through killing and incarceration. This is very prevalent in the, in the sense uh, when you see, for example, how the police occupies the favela during the World Cup or the Olympic Games. These images, these TV images circulate in the world in which the police and the army occupies the favelas to pacify these areas. But in truth, he, the message here is to secure the city for white people for white tourists, for white Brazilians. So in that sense, what I see in Brazil in this new moment, new old moment, if you, if you will, is that the new liberal state, the Brazilian new liberal state, exercise its sovereignty on the black body. The black body is the site, the locus for the exercise of Brazilian state sovereignty. So killing black people is also about making the state or reclaiming the state and reclaiming the state and reclaiming the city at the same time. So this process, what João Vargas called taking back the land, this process of reclaiming the territory, the bodily and the spatial territory, is a process of killing. And then this macabre engineering is a macabre engineer that is why it's a necrobiopolitical because at the same time that it produces death it also produces the city and it produces the state so that is what i feel is like a central feature of the brazilian state is that it exercises its sovereign power through the killing and incarceration of black people And then so throughout the ethnographic work, you follow the kind of production of black life in the context or under the sign of this kind of constant, um, constant death. So in chapter one, Macabre Spatialities, you introduce two women, Donna Cecilia and Donna Maria and their sons, Lucas and Bettino. So can you tell us a bit about how you met these women and what you learned about their jobs, their family lives and their mourning and what this tells us about the gendered production of race and space in Sao Paulo? Yes, so I met Dona Maria when I was doing activism with black youth in the favela. I had an aunt that lived in the favela close by. And so I was very familiarized with the region and I was working with black youth in this educational center for increased participation of black youth in public universities, the CORA system. 
and then I knew about the case of Betinho because Betinho was one of the many uh, black youth that were killed, black and poor youth that were killed by the so-called slaughters. That was the death squad in the periphery of São Paulo. And through Dona Maria, I knew Dona Cecilia and many, many other women that are not featured in the pages of this book. Many other women. So these two cases are samples. Tragically, they are samples to, to understand this regime of terror in the periphery of São Paulo. Uh, Betinho uh, was a car washer. He worked as a car washer. He was 23 years old by the time. His brother was participating in a gang, a gang by um, uh, a, a gang, a famous gang in the periphery of São Paulo. And Betinho and Lucas was uh, the son of Dona Cecilia. He worked with Dona Cecilia selling yogurt and door to door, selling small products to make a living for her. This book. Both women were black women. Dona Cecilia, uh, as I say, was a street vendor. Dona Maria was used to work as a domestic worker, but she was then sick and she couldn't work anymore. So she depended on Betinho's money to, to survive, to live. Uh, the place, the paradigmatic place that these two women occupy in the book, for me, is a political statement that we cannot understand police terror or state sovereignty in Brazil, in racialized places like Brazil, without understanding the place that black women occupy in these politics of security. And this is very prevalent, not only in the sense that they are the mothers, the sisters, the girlfriends of black men that are they admitted the majority of the ones killed by the police, but they are also direct victims of police violence and the state violence as well. Black feminists have invited, uh, invited us to think about state violence in a more broad way, not only the way that the state produces like the, the dead bodies on the streets, as in the case of the black men that are prevalent, prevalent victims of police violence, but also the other uncountable uh, and still very prevalent, prevalent uh, forms of social death, traumas that black women pass through, through physical violence, to the re physical killing, but also through the psychological terror, the psychological terror, the, the everyday humiliation for working as domestic workers, the violence of spatial segregation, infrastructural violence, so different forms of violence that makes the female black body as the center, as the locus for the exercise of this violence. So the book tries to make this by centering these two, these two stories, the story of Dona Maria and Dona Cecilia, not only in relation to their kids, but also in relation to the history of the dispossession, the history of labor exploitation, the history of spatial segregation that they passed through as they moved from a different states, different parts of the São Paulo, Brazil to São Paulo as black migrants. 
And you also put them at the center of chapter five that's um, called uh, Bringing Back the Dead. And you put the the activism surrounding um, black motherhood in particular and what you what you refer to as the dialectic of black motherhood at the center of this chapter where you're trying to theorize uh, what it is to live and be active and produce an alternative in the in the context of this. So can you tell us a bit about this idea of the dialectic of black motherhood and why you see it as so central to combating anti-black racism, as well as kind of surprisingly, you see it as central to combating heteronormativity? Yes, thank you, Jacob. This is, is a dialogue with Patricia Hill Collins, Joy James, and many other colleagues, Luciana Ross, many other colleagues that have taken the lead to to. to to understand the place, the role, the, pre- the predominant role of black women in sustaining black lives in these places of anti-blackness. And this is a very important uh, point that they are making because in these specialities, what makes life possible is the labor of black women, not only the reproductive labor, of everyday life, domestic work, uh, uh, economic work, but also the political activism, the political labor that they embrace to make life possible. That's why then I bring this conversation by analyzing very closely the work of Mães de Maio, Mães de Maio or Mothers of May, are the mothers of the ones killed by the police in 2006, when within a one week, the police killed more than 500 youth, most of them, again, black youth in the periphery of Sao Paulo. So the mothers of these youth came together, tried to mimicry the work of the mothers of May of Argentina, the, Argentine, the, the victims of the Argentinian dictatorship in the 70s and the 80s. So, but what they are doing here differently is racializing this conversation about the disappeared. And this is a very important point because what Mothers of May, Mães de Maio, are doing is they are saying, well, democracy never worked in Brazil. The Mothers of May in Argentina was, were making the point that, look, we live in a state of exception. The mothers of May in Brazil, they are called attention to the fact that the, the 2006 massacre was just one event in an enduring regime of terror that makes Brazil be what Brazil is, an anti-black place. So they are calling into question the very, the very assumption, the very idea that we have about democracy, and they are shifted. They are shifting the conversation not only in political activism, because they are radicals, ungovernable. They call themselves, we are ungovernable, we cannot be domesticated. So they are shifting the conversation not only in the political, the spectrum of political activism in Brazil, but also in academia. How do we come to terms to the fact that these black women are saying that Brazil is not a democracy in face of all this scandal that we see activists and scholars alike in Brazil talking about Bolsonaro, the, the, the rising of Bolsonaro as a threat to democracy when these black women are saying we live in a permanent state of exception. This is not 
a exception. It is part of Brazil. Our Brazilianness is founded on black suffering, founded on black terror. So I was going to ask this a little bit later, but let me uh, raise it now since you brought him up. Um, I was going to ask what your research tells us about Bolsonaro and the forces that brought him into power. It seemed like in a lot of ways his electoral success was predicated on popular fatigue with the soft hand of the police and by mobilizing a very powerful anti-black necropolitical desire that was articulated around this logic of vengeance. So how do you think we should understand him in light of your research and in the context of Brazilian urban and racial history? Yes, I think Bolsonaro, uh, 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 Bolsonaro complicated the things, things here, right? Because so uh, it's very hard. It's very hard to think about Bolsonaro in the sense like we don't want to say, well, every Bolsonaro is not uh, is not uh, different from Lula da Silva, from the Workers Party that was in power before Bolsonaro or, or, or any other government. And yet we know the implications of this. Bolsonaro is a openly sexist, homophobic, anti-black, anti-women. Uh, uh, his result of this anti-black, anti-women, homophobic coalition. That is very clear. At the same time, and that's what the mother de Mayoan say, if we take serious Brazilian history, if you take Brazilian history seriously, we will see that there is no difference. The Workers' Party, with all the social advancement that it provided, social policies for the poor, affirmative action policies, land distribution, economic reform, even timid. So all this that the Workers' Party did was not sufficient it was not enough to curb anti-black violence. By the contrary, the Workers' Party encouraged anti-black violence. If you see, for example, the policies in place for protecting tourists during the, 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 the Olympic Games and the World Cup, this was policy designed by the Workers' Party. Even though the state-level state, the state government had stronger part of this responsibility, the Workers' Party was the one behind most of these policies, deploying, for example, the National Guard to protect tourists and kill black civilians in major cities. So all this shows the telling contradiction of the left in Brazil. The left is also anti-black. What unites Black, uh, right, and left in Brazil, it seems to me, and this is a point that I make with a colleague, João Costa Vargas, is that both of those, both of those political spectrums come together when the black body is the center of violence. They cannot, they are unable, or they call for violence against the black people. During the Workers' Party administration, the UN, the UN called for the abolition of the military police. The police were out of control. And they not only dismissed this claim, but they also reinforced investment in security. So all this uh, brings Jair Bolsonaro uh, to power 
is a scandal for democracy in the sense of, wow, how can Brazilian democracy produce this disaster? But for most of us, and for the mass of me, familiarized with mm-hmm. Brazil, it was predictable. Predictable because anti-blackness is very diffuse in Brazil. The fact that many of the poor are also support Bolsonaro is not contradictory to everything that I'm saying about anti-blackness and black people support Bolsonaro. No, it is not. Because anti-blackness is diffused in every aspect of everyday life, including among the marginalized poor, including among the direct victims of police violence. That's also why many black men that are police officers support the Bolsonaro. Maybe they are very familiarized with the way that the Brazilian society is organized, so familiarized that they may not see or they may just they may just accept that anti-blackness is part of the Brazilian community. So on, on the other hand to that, you also describe the kind of the, the history and the formation of a black movement in Brazil that's organized often under the rubric of a s- demands for a second abolition. So could you say a bit about that movement and its history and what some of the main strategies they use and dilemmas that they face? So the black movement he, he, he denounces, denounces the need of a sec- second abolition because abolition in Brazil was a farce. Or say a bla- or, I mean, black people live in a plantation regime. This is a plantation regime that regardless if they left or the right, they live in a plantation regime. And by that, I don't mean to support Bolsonaro and not to denounce the lawfare against Lula da Silva as a political prisoner in Brazil. Maybe everything that is happening with Lula da Silva, as João Costa Vaga has said in elsewhere, is that Brazil is that Brazil is so familiarized with the face of black people in space of suffering that even like the timid social advancements of black people disrupted, disrupted these places and created so much hate. So what we see is rage against black people, rage against the timid social advancements. These black people should not be, for example, taking airplanes, being in the airports, being in shopping malls, be in space of white privilege. These are not places for you. So Bolsonaro's uh, 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 victory is, uh, in fact, a reaccession of the places of the black people. Where should be the line draw between both, both of them? So in this sense, the black movement is called for a second abolition because they are saying, well, we live in a farce. Is a democracy that is a farce, and for black people, this is a condition of slavery, a slavery condition. But the other point that I make in the book, and I think it's connected with your question, is actually the failure of the black movement. And this is a very controversial point that I make in the book. I think friends in the black movement would not like it. But what I see is a failure of the strategy. Although the black movement has for years, for decades, tried to call attention of civil society and the state to the drama, to the suffering of black people, they have been unable to sensibilize them. So the question then becomes, what is that about black suffering that these cries fall into deaf ears? Protest, 
strikes, hunger strikers, protests, all these forms of uh, occupying the governor's office. Uh, yes, all this kind of a protest has been unable to stop the machine of the death. Black, the black social movement have followed the scripts, civil society scripts. Protest peaceful,ly uh, goes try to do some political pressure in the Congress. All these scripts, the legal grammar uh, designed for claiming rights in a democratic society have been have failed, have not been enough to stop black genocide in Brazil. So what we left here for us to think is all the forms of black protest that have been marginalized from the political lexicon of the left because they are seen too radical, too outlawed, too violent. And at the same time, it may be one of the few possibilities for black voices to be heard in a society that refuses to take black suffering seriously. So that's my take about the black movement. The black movement has been very incisive in denouncing the need for a second abolition, denouncing the plantation regime, denouncing police terror, mass incarceration, and at the same time, because of black social movement, have relied, has relied on the grammar, the legal grammar of political society, of, of civil society, they have been unable to stop all this machine of death. And I think one of the most challenging uh, projects that you take up in the book in chapter four called Sticking Up, you try to think about what are some of the other forms of politics that you might be able to identify that might not be the most obvious to, to label as political. And so in that chapter, you describe the way that young black men respond to criminalization and challenge the racial and spatial order of the city through their participation in the drug economy and the criminal activities that surround it. So can you introduce us a bit to the PCC, tell us who they are, what they do and how they came to be, and and then perhaps a bit about why you theorize um, young black men's involvement in this as a form of tragic agency. Yeah, PCC is a self self-named criminal organization in the periphery of São Paulo. It arose it arose uh, during the it emerged during the nineties when the state of São Paulo was imposing this new the, the, the federal the federal government was imposing this new law the new new drug legislation the drug statute uh, criminalizing drug users so we have an escalation of mass incarceration in São Paulo so as I said the state of São Paulo became the first runner the number one in mass incarceration at the same time, then that we had this massive incarceration of black youth, we had also the emergence of the PCC. And the PCC recruited most of its soldiers within the prison. So, at the same extent, the state was creating the PCC by creating the conditions of recruitment of black youth in, within the prison. To be clear, not all members of the PCC are black. Most of it is, for example, the leaders of the, the organization are not black. But yet, and this is a controversial point that I make in the book, and the colleagues working on PCC may not agree, is that most of its low-ranking soldiers are 
black young men, favelados from the favela. And this is what calls my attention, is to see PCC as a political practice, as a criminal agency. Because the question for me becomes, why has PCC been able to recruit so many black youth and we couldn't do the same in the black movement? All these, all the forms of, you say, pedagogical practices in the favelas, for example, <clears throat> for example, the evangelicals. So all these, the, the <clears throat> evangelical churches, the state with its pedagogical uh, projects, all these projects try to recruit black youth and they haven't been able to do the same that the PCC has, has, has done. PCC has regimented so many youth that we don't know exactly the number of soldiers in the organization. Some people say that 30,000, other people say that 100,000 people. So we have a huge amount of black youth recruited by PCC and doing some kind of work, political work, that for the left is very hard to, to consider as political. But at the same time, we may ask ourselves, what does political, to act politically mean in contexts in which civil society is closed to black politics? So space of civil society, if the space of civil society is closed to black, to black politics, should we consider black criminal practice as a strategy to open a tiny space for black voice, for black demands being be heard. So of course, then the question becomes, well, where, what is the political, what is the, the potential for change in this isolated, self-serving criminal practice? Well, we may not look, uh, we may not find the answer for this if we look for political action uh, based on the leftist Marxist model political action. We may, and here I'm engaged with Philippe Bourgeois, with Trevon Gardner, with, with, even with James Scott in the conversation about everyday, everyday forms of resistance. But these forms of resistance, at least for black people, must be conceptualized differently, not within the lexicon of the leftist politics. And so you write there that uh, mass incarceration really forms the backdrop um, for these for this uh, organization. And that's something that you explore in more detail in Chapter 3, the favela to prison pipeline, where you really um, try to deconstruct the spatial difference between the favela and the prison and show the ways that the favela operates itself as a form of prison and the prison itself operates as a form of favela. So can you expand a bit more on this argument and why you see it as so central to understanding um, the shape of uh, Brazilian apartheid? Yes, I think this is very central for the conversation that we are talking because since we are centering this conversation on spatial politics, when we see the geography of Sao Paulo, we see we see the specialization of injustice, of punishment. By that, I mean the victims of police violence are the ones that live in the periphery. The periphery is very fragmented by spatial segregation, by poor uh, 
design of public transportation, by disinvestment, by political marginalization, fragmented by police terror. And at the same time, when you go to the prison, and that was my experience as a prison abolitionist, visiting the, the prison every every week. So you go to the prison and you think the and you are invited to think the prison as a special unity that unites fragmented geographies of the city. So this really sparked my attention. It's really called my attention to think how these fragmentations of the state violence comes to be unified in bodies and space. So the prison, the jail, is not just a jail itself. It, it is what Dylan Rodriguez called a prison regime. It's ideology, it's a program of government. So this rationality of the government that informs state practices in Brazil can be better described through this prison favela pipeline. The manifestation, the fragmentation, the fragmented manifestation of state terror comes to be coherent, comes to be organized through these spatial arrangements of bodies and the space in the favela and in the prison. This is one, that's one point. The other way that to think about this and complement one another is that favela and prison are not different, as Asata Shakur would say. These two places are products of the same regime of the power. If the favela before, if it's the favela in the in the genealogy, in the genealogy of Brazilian uh, politics of space, as, as we would say, the favela resemble the slave quarter. So the same way the prison nowadays is the plantation. So these two places that were connected before the slavery quarter and the plantation, now we see the prison and the favela as part of the same geography. So this, the specific geographies of the suffering comes to be united through this pipeline. The bodies that are in the favela are the same bodies that are in the prison and vice versa. That brings me to um, a question about the way that the, the the book is one of the most sustained engagements that, that I've seen so far in anthropology with the philosophical tradition that's often called Afro-pessimism. So you draw specifically on the work of Saija Hartman and Hortense Spillers and on the Fanon-inspired theorists Jar uh, Jared Sexton and Steve Martineau, as well as their interlocutors like Catherine McKittrick and Fred Moten. And so one of the big ethical debates that you raise um, that informs your ethnographic approach concerns the centrality of death in defining the black experience and the centrality of suffering in particular. Um, and you, you, you say you, you cite the way that this risks undermining black political agency. So can you say a bit about how you navigated this tension in the ways that you write black urban life in the context of the necropolis? Yes, thank you for this question. <laughs> this question is actually a very hard one because, no, I keep myself admittedly ambiguous in some of these debates. And to be honest about this, is this is a very important conversation and yet very difficult for anthropologists, as you said, 
This is a work that tries to engage this conversation that have been done mostly by critical uh, film critique for in the in the field of film critique, film studies or literature, political science. So. So it is very hard when you go to do field work or you try to engage with these theoretical claims that are very important and necessary. But when you engage with them in the space of everyday life, it is very hard. So at the same time that I take very, very serious uh, the Afro-pessimistic premise that in this social world, we still live the afterlife of slavery, that black people are slaves, slaves, and that in this regime, humanity and the blackness are two opposed, are unreconcilable positions. So if we take this series, and we must take this series, it becomes very hard to engage with this conversation when you see that your interlocutors your friends, the people that you work with in, in the field, they not necessarily think in these terms, right? They do not sometimes conceptualize their experience in these terms. So I ask, how would Dona Maria, for example, or Serginho, or Betinho, or, or Dona Cecilia, see the claim that they are socially dead, that black people live in the time and space of death, of permanent death? So I take the Afro-pessimistic uh, uh, point very serious, but I also take Fred Morton warning very serious to, to try not to put back people in a position of a death-driven subject, a subject that is irreparable, a subject that is beyond, beyond reclaim of his or her agency. So I try to look at this agency in the world of the crime. The world of the crime is how black people define the, the place in which they live. And this world of the crime is the place in which they position themselves beyond the law. So all this conversation of the law, of the human rights, of humanity, all this collapses because these black men engaged in the world of the crime, they are not invested in this conversation about civil society politics or the, the conversation about legality. So if civil society in the state treat them as enemies, so this condition of enmity is the one that informs their practice. So I think that maybe, and I hope, I hope, I hope I, I I was successful in trying to bridge the conversation between Afro pessimism and Afro optimism by showing that that in the world of crime, the socially dead is politically alive. We can we can say, we can certainly say that this conversation about the world of crime is very male centric because most of the subjects that appear there in the PCC, for example, are black men, are male. Yes, but I bring also some other contexts 
in which I saw how Luana and Nina, two black lesbian girls, young women, they engaged with this politics as well. One selling drugs on the housing project where she lives, another incarcerated for sticking up uh, with her brother. So all these are also manifestations in which we can see that they outlawed by default, outlawed black subjects reclaiming the space of crime or the world of crime as a way to reassert their political life. The ultimate question for us then becomes, what is political? How do we define political action when these actions sometimes it goes against the interest of the black community itself? That's a really great question, I think, to wrap up. Um... The, our discussion of the book. But before we go, could you tell us a bit about the project that you're working on at the moment? Yes. At the moment, I'm working on... Well, this is a good question because it ties to the previous one. Uh, now I'm working on some forms of hope, black hope. <laughs> Try to find hope in some space of despair. Uh, I am working with black youth engaged in gang violence in Cali, Colombia. Uh, the listener may know that Colombia has been passing through a peace deal. The main FARC guerrilla group has, has signed a deal with the government. And now we have all these international donors, this so-called peace industry, coming to Colombia, coming to Cali, trying to discipline these urban, troubled urban youth on how to take opportunity in this moment and in becoming peace builders themselves. So the question for me here is, how do we understand all this technology of the government in face of so many deaths, the killings of the black activists, poverty, unemployment? So I try to look at this through the lens of the black youth participate in gang violence. I try to see how and why all these projects of peace building collapse or have collapsed or have failed despite of so much money, so many, so many investment, so much investment from these donors and this goes nowhere. So that's what I, I, I frame as refusal to be governed. These people refuse to be governed and then black ungovernability to use the Helen Kwan's uh, word, black ungovernability become the, a place of inquiry. This is what I'm trying to understand, is how black ungovernability can become a possibility to create a new world. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project. Um, and thank you, Jamie, so much for joining us on the New Book Network. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and thanks again for taking the time for being with us. Thank you very much, Jacob. Thank you, the listeners, for this great opportunity. Take care.